Caleb's here this morning. I'm sitting in the front, and Caleb is my 16-year-old son, and Caleb has become a little bit of a news junkie. Uh, I watch him watching the news a lot. I watch him watching it on the TV. I watch him watching it on the Internet. And if you hang around and watch the news enough, if you've been watching it this week, there's a few things that you're aware of by now, that Ebola is no longer just in Liberia. It's now in Dallas. In fact, I was uh, at a conference with a guy that had flown in from Dallas, and he said, like, forget, you know, terrorism. He said, the fact that this plane was coming in from Dallas, like, it was setting off every alarm in the airport that, that could go off. I got up very early on Sunday mornings, and I was uh, spending some time on the Internet, and the, you will see uh, the global economy. There's some articles out this morning that the global economy appears to be slowing much more rapidly than anybody had predicted. In fact... If you follow the markets this week, you know the market took some brutal hits. Does anybody know that? Um, in fact, if you watch Jim Cramer, Cramer, am I getting a signal back there? <laughs> if you watch Cramer on CNBC, Cramer was talking about the crazy, oh, that's because he's a financial guy. <laughs> he's, no, no. <laughs> Um, you know the markets took some brutal hits, and Cramer was calling it just like a horrible, a horrible time for the stock market. Your 401k this week does not look like it did last week. Russia is rolling into the Ukraine. Most of the Western world seems relatively powerless to stop it. The real estate market that we kept thinking was going to come back and, you know, we'll finally get the equity back in our house. You know, it seems like it might not be happening. Uh, and my neighbor put her house up for sale about six months ago, and she is on the third or fourth straight price drop on that house. And you know what happens when your neighbor can't sell his house and he keeps dropping his price? You know what that does to your house? And I just keep watching new price signs go up. ISIS is beheading innocents and killing children all over the Middle East and appears to have taken back most of the gains that were made over the last decade in Iraq. And Israel and Palestine are at it again, just like nothing has ever changed. It's becoming, especially as I watch it, if I come home and watch it with Caleb, it's almost as if you need a dose of courage before you sit down and watch what's going on in the world. And especially when I watch it with Caleb, he's, uh, he's going to be 17 this week. He'll be driving and I'll have another fear. That'll be at the end of this month. But that'll be a very real and present danger for all of us. Um, when I watch it with Kay, there's an element of me, when I do it sometimes, I'll turn the channel. You know why? Because it's too much. And I think to myself, I don't want my son seeing this because he's going to get afraid. And he's, he's going to have bad dreams about this, and he's going to be worried. And I don't want to instill in him that fear. Now, if you're like me and you watch it, if you're a human being, you can't help. Don't tell me that it doesn't stir in you. A little bit of fear, a little bit of worry, a little bit of an anxiety. I mean, I, I watch it, and I think, man, if the economy really is going to go the other way, what's that going to mean for our jobs? What's that going to mean for our church? And ultimately, what's that going to mean for my job? When I see the Ebola scares, I think, man, you know, what's going to happen if Ebola... I mean, I can go these things down my mind. Like Caleb wrestles. Uh, you know, Ebola is a contact, a contact spread disease. What happens, like, on the wrestling mat? And what would that mean for, for, for my son? And, you know, as I watch this, these things just start going in my mind. As one writer said, we sophisticate investment strategies. We create elaborate security systems. We legislate and build up stronger militaries. Yet... Yet, as a culture, we depend on more mood-altering drugs than any culture that's ever existed. And moreover, I wasn't alone in this fear for my son, because moreover, I read a statistic this week, ordinary children today are more fearful than psychiatric patients were in the 1950s. So Jesus, 
asks this great eternal question in the Bible. And we'll look at the context at it in a minute, but he essentially says this, and the question still holds. Why are you guys so afraid? Why are you afraid? I've been asking myself this week, because I'm studying this, and I'm coming home watching this on TV, and I saw, my, I saw the, the stock market going up and down, and, and I'm going, well, I could give you a couple of reasons, God. Those ISIS guys look bad. And my, so does my stock account this week. But what is it that I'm afraid of? What are you afraid of? See, Jesus has a lot to say about fear. Nobody ever told you this before, but believe it or not, the most common command that Jesus spoke of, came out of the fear not genre. This is good stuff. If I said to you, what command, what is the greatest command in the scripture? Who knows? Who would be able to answer that? To love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind, right? What would be the second greatest command? To love your neighbor as yourself. Well, if you take those, there's 125 command statements in the scripture. Those comprise eight of them. Do not fear comprise 21 of them. Because Jesus knows that in this world, you will be afraid. And being afraid in this world is a very big problem. So what are you afraid of? I can tell you a little bit. The thing that you're afraid of the most, the thing that you're afraid of the most is the thing that you're most devoted to. Whatever it is that's causing you, maybe you say, well, I'm not afraid of anything. All right, tough guy. But there is some level of anxiety, some, some amount of little bit of worry in your life. And the question is, whatever that worry, whatever that anxiety is coming from, whatever's fueling it, that is likely the thing that you are most devoted to in this world. Now, as I heard one pastor put it this week, and it's probably not a good thing for a pastor to be, be saying, but it was true of me, so I said I might as well admit it to you guys too. Here's the deal. I never worry about your job. Never have I gone to bed at night and said to myself, I mean, I know Greg Billing as well as anybody. I've never gone to bed at night and lost sleep because Greg has no work. Now, that sounds bad, and I'm his friend, and I love him. And when he's asked me to pray for it, I've prayed for him. And, and we've, we've, we've counseled together, and, and, and I've spoken to him about it. But, but if I'm very honest with you, at the end of the night, I'm not sitting at home worrying about Greg's job. I have compassion on it, uh, his situation. But the, the deal is, I haven't devoted my life to Greg's job. Now, here's another thing. I don't, want, don't take this the wrong way. But tonight, when I place my head upon my pillow... I will not be worried about your kids' grades. It won't strike me as something that will keep me from sleeping. Now, if you were to write on your connection card, please fail, pray for my son, he's really struggling in school, I would do that, and I would take it very seriously, and I would have compassion, because I have kids that are struggling with grades. So I know, you know what that can bring about. However, the truth is, I have not devoted myself to getting your children ahead. So at the end of the day, I'm not really worried about it. It's not in the forefront of my mind because it's not what I've given my life to. I haven't devoted myself to it. For example, I have never, not once in my life, ever worried about Ron Hadley's retirement. Never struck me. 
Now, if things go bad for Ron, and, and he let me know, I, of course, I would feel terribly, and I'd walk with him, and, and if there was financial issues as a church, we have some, some money that we can help people with, and I'd come alongside him, but the truth is, I haven't spent years dedicated to building up his retirement account, so the reality is, I don't really fear that anything's going wrong with Ron's retirement account. It's not in the forefront of my mind. You know what I worry about? I worry about my job. Think about it all the time. Church jobs ain't easy to find, especially when you don't want to move, especially when you spent the first 20 years of your life in finance, especially when you have two kids in college and two more that are about to start. I worry about my job all the time. You know what the average pastoral stay is? Five years. You know how long I've been on staff here? I'm, I'm, already, on, I'm already on borrowed time. So I, I lay awake at night sometimes and I worry about my job. You know what I, you know what I, because I'm devoted to it. I put a lot of time into this job. I like this job. I love this job. You know what else I worry about? I worry about my kids. Because I put a lot of time into those kids. I've devoted myself to those kids and I worry, you know, are, are they hanging around with the right crowd? Are they being influenced by the wrong people? I worry about it all the time. No, Caleb's here this morning, so I'll keep using him. When Caleb goes out, I want to know who he's going out with. Who is that kid? Wait a minute, didn't you tell me that kid wasn't a good kid like six months ago? Oh, he's changed, Dad. Right? So I, I worry about it because I'm devoted. You know what I'm worried about? I'm worried about their souls. I'm worried about their faith. You know why? Because their dad's a pastor. Who wants their dad to be a pastor? Really? Right? That's like the worst case scenario if you're a kid. And, and so I worry about that because I don't want them to lose their faith. I want them to know Christ in a deep way, in a personal way, in a real way. So I worry about that. Because I put a lot of, I'm devoted to that. You know what I spend a lot of time worried about? My retirement account. First of all, I've got to try to hold on to this job that I've already gone past, you know, the due date on. And then I need to be able to put enough money away because I'd really like to live in Florida at some point. Right? And so, I, you know, Joan will tell you, we've had the conversations that, well, you know, if we only spend 4% of the savings a year and we match it up with Social Security, I think we only need to say that I lose sleep over these things. Why? Because that's where I have devoted my soul. So the question starts to become, if you shifted your core devotion, if you shifted your core concerns, what would it do to your worry? So Jesus, I mean, his scripture is just loaded with these stories about worry. Over and over and over again, he talks about it, and he keeps bringing it up. And I want to share a couple with you because I think there's so much for us to learn here, okay? So the first is, we're going to look at what you just sang. You just sang about a storm and, and Jesus being in a storm. That comes from this story in Mark chapter 4. You know it. The day when evening came, Jesus says to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. And leaving the crown behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also boats with him. A furious squall came up. Remember that word, a furious squall came up. And the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. And Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. So the disciples wake him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? And so he got up and he rebuked the wind and he said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And the wind died down, and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, here's your question for the day. Why are you so afraid? Don't you have any faith? 
And they were terrified because they were human beings, not superheroes. They were terrified. And they asked each other, I love this, who is this guy? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now, what you see here is some people, some really devoted people, some disciples who had a high level of devotion to Jesus. And they find themselves in a storm. So, to everybody who ever promised you or me that in following Jesus or getting in the boat with Jesus, you are not going to have any more storms in your life. You are going to have any more pain or trials or tribulations or frustrations or disappointment. Guess what? They lied. Get over it. That's not the story of, of, of following Christ. Somebody sold you a bag of goods. That's not the truth. But I am going to tell you the story about Christ See, this term that, that Mark uses here, um, for, ferocious squall, in Matthew's account, he calls it a great storm. And in the Greek, he uses this word seismos. It's a very interesting word, seismos. It's only used a couple other places in the scripture. Anybody know what root that is, what we use in our language, seismos? What's it the root of? Seismologists who study what? Earthquakes. A seismograph who measures earthquakes. So this is, now get it, they, he could have used any word. This was not a common word. He's trying to get you to understand this is not a small storm that the boys are up against. This is like a cataclysmic coming together of the perfect storm. Everything is going wrong in the boat. As Max Lucado, and nobody paints a better word picture than Max Lucado, as he painted the scene, he says, Matthew uses the word seismos on only other two other occasions. Once at Jesus' death when Calvary shook, and again at Jesus' resurrection when the graveyard tremored. Apparently, listen to us, those, those that fear like me, apparently the stilled storm shared equal billing in the trilogy of Jesus' greatest shakeups, defeating sin on the cross, death at the tomb, and here silencing fear on the seas. You see, Jesus is very serious about your fear. Do not be afraid. What are you so afraid of? Now, here is what you learn about fear. Jesus is dead asleep amidst the seismos. But what does fear do? This, I want you to understand, it's important you understand how much fear will mess up your life. What does fear do in the midst of these storms? Now, his followers have Jesus in the boat with them, and they could have woken him up and said, Jesus, Son of God, what do you know about changing, you know, the, the boat around? Jesus, Son of God, wake up. We've seen you do all kinds of things in the past. Hey, how about helping us out here? Jesus, Son of God, could you wake up and could you teach us about how to get back to shore? Jesus, Son of God, could you wake up and quiet the storm? Instead, that's not what they wake him up and ask. Did anybody catch what they asked? Jesus, do you even care? And that's what fear and anxiety and worry always do to people as they follow God. Jesus, I just got a call from my doctor. It's really bad. Do you even care? Jesus, my son, I'm losing him. I'm losing him. My daughter, God, do you know what she's caught herself up in? Where are you? Do you, do, you, do you even care? 
Jesus, I lost my job. I can't pay my bills. The mortgage company is foreclosing on my house. Jesus, do you even care? Fear will always lead you to believe that God doesn't care. That's why Jesus does not want you to fear. Do not fear. What are you so afraid of? See, fear will always get you to believe that God doesn't care about you. Here's the second thing fear will always do. These guys in that boat, they had seen Jesus do all kinds of miraculous things. They had already left most of what they had in life to follow this Jesus. They had stepped out in risk. But the minute fear gets involved, they forget everything that God has done for them, and they say, do you even care? You know, if I went around the room, and I know we don't like to interact, but if I said to you, can you tell me that something that God has done in your life? Many of you would tell me different stories. Think about it. You'd tell me about the job that he got you when you didn't think you were going to be able to get it. You'd tell me about the check that he sent you. We just did this in my small group Sunday night. I'm doing that starting point group with, with uh, my wife. And we sat in the room. We said, do you trust God? Tell me about your trust stories with God. And people shared these stories about how when God came through for them with their kids and their money and their finances and their health. I remember when God healed my baby. And do you know what happens to all those stories? The minute you start to fear, they're gone. Do you even care? So fear will get you to question the character of God. Fear will get you to forget your walk with God. Here's the third thing that fear does. This is so true, okay? And you're going to see it proved out in an experiment in a little bit. It's just, just crazy true. Nothing will paralyze you and keep you trapped in a horrible situation like fear. Fear shuts down change and transformation. It's absolutely paralyzing. I looked at both accounts of this story. One's in Matthew and one's in Mark. If you read the accounts, when this, squall, when this storm comes up, this seismos comes up, do you hear anything about them trying to figure out a way to sh shift the sail so the boat will go in a different direction? Do you hear anywhere in there where they go, hey, James and John, you get the buckets and start bailing out, and I'll get the oars, and we'll get out of this thing. You don't hear any of that because you know what fear does to you? It paralyzes you. This is why you stay in that dead-end job. This is why you hang around in that bad relationship. This is what fear does. It cripples us and locks us into misery. This kind of anxiety, it builds up and it causes the negative thoughts to run through our mind, these self-defeating, persistent cycling of the same stuff over and over again. Instead of prompting us to take action, fear stops, stops us from... Hey, I'll give you an example. You sat down, you're going through your finances. You and your wife, and you're looking through them, and you're saying, Joan and I did this a couple weeks ago. Well, we're not making the money we used to make. And the expenses are a little higher, higher than they used to be. Well, I don't like this. You know, we've never really had enough money. We're starting to burn through some of our savings. I guess there's a few things we could do. I mean, we could, we could maybe, maybe get another job. We could get a second job. Or, you know, we could work on cutting expenses. You know, we could sell something and maybe get ourselves back in line. You know, maybe we should work on living on a budget. I got an idea. Let's go out to eat. <laughs> it's a true story, right? This is what we do. We don't deal with it. We flee from it. 
Fear just locks you in place. I'm, I'm never going to have the right, the right woman. I, I just can't relate to women well. I'm so nervous around them, and I'm so worried I'm going to say the wrong thing and look stupid. So I think I'll just sit here on the computer for a few hours and have a relationship there. I'm so worried about my kid. I'm so worried that he's hanging out in the wrong groups. I'm so worried that he's doing the wrong thing. Maybe I should check his cell phone. I don't want to do that. Anybody ever pick up their kid's cell phone and go, I really don't want to do this? Because fear will paralyze you. This is why Jesus says more than anything else, don't be afraid because if you're afraid, you're not going to believe in my goodness. You're not going to remember where we've been. You're not going to be able to overcome it in your life. It's going to lock you into horrible patterns. And I'm going to give you the number one reason that Jesus says more than anything else, do not fear. Because when you fear, when you worry, when you allow anxiety to take root in your life, it will more than anything else lead you to idolatry. Nothing will lead you to idolatry quicker than fear. Because when fear and worry and anxiety shape our lives, safety becomes our God. When safety becomes our God, we begin to worship risk-free lives. Yet, show me Those of us that have these desires for these great lives, show me the face of the guy carved on the mountain whose greatest pursuit was safety. Where are the noble deeds? Where are the brave accomplishments of the people who pursue the safe life? What can a life bent on safety do for God or or do for others? I mean, you, you... If you have a life bent on safety, you're never going to love because love is a risk. You might get hurt. If you have a life bent on safety, you're never going to give to the least of these because I need to hold on to it for me. The pursuit, listen, men Mills, I think this is what I've been hearing from God this week. The pursuit of safety at all costs is what wrecks the dreams of man. It's the emasculator of greatness, and it is the slave master of free souls. This is why Jesus said... Don't be afraid. I mean, don't you want, Jesus says, I've come to set you free, and we just exchange it for this fear and this slavery. It's so big in our life, and Jesus understands this. So again, he starts to tell a story about fear in Matthew 6, 25 to 34. Because you will be worried about the thing you're most devoted to. You will be worried about the thing you're most devoted to. Is not life more than food? Or excuse me, let's go back up. This is Jesus speaking to people of the first century. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body or what you will wear. Now this is a first century audience. They really were worried about what they were going to eat. That was a real worry. Most of us have never had that. They really were worried about what they were going to wear, not necessarily because it was a fashion statement, but because when this wore out, they didn't really have another tunic. So if Jesus were to come into our audience today, he would probably stand up front and he wouldn't say, don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. He would say, don't worry about somebody. Don't worry about the car you drive. Don't worry about your 401k. Don't worry about your health. Don't worry about your wealth. Don't worry about all of your relationships. 
This, this is what Jesus is teaching here. Don't worry about, listen to my followers, don't worry about those things. Is life not more than food? I mean, isn't life more than your health? I know that health's important, but you wouldn't say the sum total of my life is that I'm healthy. Life is more than that. Life is more than your money. Life is more than your kids. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Listen to this. You're starting to catch the deal here now. If you want to be free from fear, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or, or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Menham Hills. Are you not to God more valuable than the birds of the air? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? What are you doing? And why do you worry about your clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. You see that? Driving home this afternoon on the mountains. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow and is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Mendham Hills, don't you believe that God loves you more than the the grass of the field? So don't worry saying, what shall we eat? What about my health? What about my 401k? What about my house? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we fear? Because the pagans, people that don't believe in God, that don't have a relationship with God, that don't trust in God, that don't know God, of course they run after those things. They don't know any better. But your heavenly Father knows you need these things. So instead, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and these things will be given to you as well. So don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble on its own. Why can Jesus, in the middle of a seismos, in the middle of an earthquake-driven storm, sleep? This is a true story. He's sleeping. What is it he's trying to tell his disciples, that, there are, that people that really were afraid of not having food? He says, don't worry about tomorrow. You ever notice, if I asked you what you're worried about, none of you would say, I'm worried about this afternoon. You're all worried about tomorrow. I'm sitting around worried about my retirement. I'm 40, I'm a man in around my 30s. <laughs> I'm re- worried about my retirement. I would say if I was to add up my fears, that would be in my top three. Right? Why are you doing that? And Jesus says to them, don't you understand that you are a heck of a lot more important to the God of the universe than the birds of the air or the flowers of the field. He created you in his image. He breathed his own life into you. Jesus says, God knows every hair on your head. You're his highest creation. You're the thing that when he made it, he didn't say it was just good. He said it was very good. You're as a valued and adopted son and daughter. You're more valuable. Men, you are so much more valuable than the birds of the air or the grass of the field. What are you so worried about? What is this worry doing for you? It can't add a single day to your life. If this God, your God, if he loves you more than the birds of the air or the flowers of the field, if he really is in control, and he is, what, why are you so worried? Why are you so scared? Now, this doesn't mean you're not going to have storms come into your life. We had some new friends last week sharing about the storm that came into their lives and how devastating it was. It doesn't mean you're not going to have challenges to face. It doesn't mean that you won't 
feel the fall of man. It doesn't mean you won't feel the penalty of sin in your life. But when you do see them and you feel them and when you face them, the reality is that peace is not found in finding a lake with no storms. It comes from having Jesus in the boat. You keep chasing. I keep chasing after places that don't exist, these places of, of, of passive water, when the whole time it was never about finding that. It was about getting in the boat with Christ. And we try so many other ways. I mean, we try so many other ways in this pursuit of safety, in this pursuit of the safe life. And it leads us down these roads of idolatry all of the time. You might say, John, that sounds so good, but gosh, what a bunch of religious babble. I have to be honest. I would be much more interested in having money in the bank than Jesus in the boat. And to that, I'd have to say to you, really? Because, you know, I feel that way too until you go and study what money in the bank has done. Between 1948 and 2001, now I'm not even counting the horrific problem we're in now, which started in 07 and 08, but just between 48 and 2001, the U.S. economy endured 10 recessions. They lasted an average of 10 months apiece, and they resulted in the loss of billions of dollars, meaning every five years or so, and we might be seeing it right now, every five years or so, the economy dumps its suitors and starts over. Now, what would you think of a man who did the same thing with a woman? What would you use to describe a husband who philandered his way through nine different wives over 50 years? And, and what word would you use to describe wife number 10? Fool. And that's what we do. I'm going to pursue safety. I'm going to pursue this. I'm going to pursue that because this will be the safe life. Then I won't be afraid. But Jesus goes, listen, I don't promise it the way the world promises it to you. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. The Spirit of God it doesn't make us timid, but it gives us power and love and self-discipline. See, the peace that I'm talking about with Jesus is not just something like some, some health, self-help technique to manage stress. It's deeper than an anxiety reduction mechanism. It's got to be this settled conviction down deep in your core somewhere that all things really are in God's hands. All things really are in God's hands. Therefore, yea, though the storm may come, everything is going to be okay. Now, the core of this, if you want to understand the core of this, I'm going to give you the core of it, and you, if, if you can embrace this, you'll never fear again, and you'll stay out of that, that cycle of fear and, and the paralyzing nature of it. The core of this is what John discovered in 1 John 4. He said that this is how love is made complete among us, so that we'll have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. You want to sleep in the boat? You want to be like Jesus in the boat? How did Jesus sleep in the boat? He says, there is no fear in love, Perfect love drives out fear. Jesus knew the love of his Father. When you know the love of God, you sleep in boats. You overcome fear in your life by coming to a place where you understand how deeply you're loved by God. Do you remember there's that one place in the Scripture where Paul says, I'm praying that your spiritual eyes might be open, because it's not going to be natural, but my prayer is that your eyes would be open to understand how deep and how high and how wide the love of God is for you in Christ Jesus. Because if you ever understood that, you would never be afraid of anything ever again. When you get there, when we get there, I'm not there. 
But when we get there, when we study it, and when we sing of it, when we encourage each other in it, and we, we take some steps out and exercise a little trust in it, when we understand it as a deep core conviction, we won't be afraid anymore. Do you know why? Because the thing that we have devoted ourselves to will have changed. Because the thing we devoted ourselves to will have changed. And what you fear and worry about is the thing that you have devoted yourself most to. Perfect love. Perfect love casts out fear. I thought about my wife this morning. I think I fear about my kids. I fear about my job. I fear about my retirement. I've never feared that my wife was going to leave me. Because my wife, she's shown me over 25, 26, whatever it's been. I was 24 married last week. But <laughs> over these years, she, is, she has shown me that she loves me. And I've never, it's just been a great blessing in my life. Perfect love casts out fear. So where do you run to when you're afraid? Because you're a human being, you're going to get afraid. Do you run to avoidance techniques? Do you run to faking it? Do you run to sedating it? You know what, I'll just have another drink. Perfect love, believing that there's somebody that's bigger and stronger and more able to protect and provide for you. Do you run to the arms of God and I'm trying to show, you know, there's science behind all this stuff. I, over these weeks, this is not just feel-good doism stuff, right? This is like real stuff. And science is just catching up with the Word of God on some of this stuff. There is an inverse relationship between love and fear. Now, I drew this diagram wrong in the first service, so we're going to try it again. There is an inverse relationship between love and fear. As you feel comfort in love, your fear diminishes. The less you believe and trust in God, the less you have a relationship with God, the less you believe that he's real and that he's holding you and that he's got you, the more you're going to fear. Now, I could talk to you about this. I could show you all kinds of more examples. But I came across a scientific study that just, oh, I was so excited about this. I was showing everybody in my office this week. This great video, I'm going to show it to you in a second. You may have heard of it. It was, it was um, done, it was a scientific experiment that was done by a doctor named Harry Harlow. He was a research psychologist in the mid-20th century, and he became famous for his study of monkeys and their need for love and the relationship to, between love and fear. And he found that if little monkeys had perfect conditions for hygiene and food, in other words, if you gave the monkeys everything that you and I think we need, in this case, the monkeys needed food and hygiene, cleanliness, we would be happy. But, ha but he found out it was the complete opposite. In fact, in some of these cases, these monkeys would starve because of the lack of love. And then he studied the impact of love and fear. So I, I got a four-minute video, and it just, it just displays this like crazy. So, Darla, show this. Conquest. The search for new knowledge about our universe, our world, and ourselves. This monkey is an orphan separated from his mother since the day of his birth. Literally, his life hangs by a thread, a soft cheesecloth pad that is his only companion, his only comfort. Once a day, the pad is removed for cleaning. This is the laboratory of psychologist Harry Harlow. Distressed. Permanently deprived. He is studying monkeys to better understand human relationships. He may die for want of love. Harlow believes he can use science to study love. With a series of pioneering experiments, 
he explores territory where few scientists have ventured. Harlow said that there was such a thing as a science of love, for example, that love, the kind of intimacy that characterized relationships between mothers and infants, although in his case he studied monkeys, um, could be the object of science, that you literally could move love into a laboratory, put it under a microscope. Harlow is studying love because he believes it makes an indelible impact on a young life. The relationship between a mother and her child, what Harlow calls our earliest social environment, could hold the key to explaining behavior throughout life. Harlow designs a set of ingenious experiments. He raises a baby monkey, allowing it to choose between two surrogate mothers, a wire mother that feeds it, and a cloth mother that doesn't. A cloth mother that Harlow thinks might provide something else comfort and love. Here's baby 106, weaned on a wire mother. He's going to the wire mother. But this infant quickly runs to the cloth mother, where he will stay for the next 18 hours cuddling. In Harlow's mind, choosing nurturing over sustenance. In another experiment, Harlow creates a fearful situation. Whom does the infant turn to now? Let's find out what his reaction to his mother are when we frighten him. He's scared, all right. And he does what any child will do in a similar situation. He was running to his mother to touch her, to drive away his fear. To Harlow, there is something about the experience of comfort and love, even more than food, that seems crucial to all these monkeys. But what happens when the infant is raised alone, without any mother at all, wire or cloth? In this situation, the orphan monkey stays alone. He won't even go to the cloth mother when frightened, but retreats into his own world. Harlow believes he has shown how want of love can damage an infant for life. And he worries the same is true for people. Perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. Your savings account won't do it. Food doesn't do it. Stuff doesn't do it. There is only one thing that will overcome fear and doubt and anxiety and set you free to live the life you were created to live. It's believing that there is someone greater than you whose arms are open for you, who desires to hold you. Did you know, did you see what the monkey did when he got, the study as you read it, I got to read some of the things. They noticed that when the monkey got to what it thought was protecting and loving, it would push itself into it as hard as it could. It would try to get every bit of skin onto it that it could. And when it got scared, it would first try to feel and make sure it was there, and then it would turn around with the confidence of being in the mother's lap, in the confidence of having being sitting on one, being with one who is bigger and stronger and better, and if you saw the monkey, he turns around and laughs at his fear. That's what you were created for. Not to spend your whole life 
paralyzed, sedating yourself, building up idols that you think will provide safety for you. Now, you might say, as we get ready to come to the communion table this morning, John, I thought this was a talk on Philippians. What happened to Philippians? It is a talk on Philippians, and Paul summed it up a lot better than I can. If you were here last week, um, Stephen Trafton did such a wonderful job explaining what was going on in Philippians, but essentially, Paul is writing it from a jail. He's been jailed again. The Philippian church is starting to unravel a little bit. There's dissension in the church. The people are starting to fight with each other. They're starting to lose their place in the community. People are starting to watch them and distrust them. They're starting to lose some of their businesses. The guy that they thought was leading them is in jail again. So what do you think they're starting to do? They're starting to get afraid. And from a pit, as Paul hears about this, he writes to them, and watch him lay this out for them. He says to them in Philippians, first verse in 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I say again, rejoice. Of course he had to say it again. What are you, crazy, Paul? Rejoice. You're in jail. This church is becoming a mess. We're losing all of our business in town. Everybody thinks we're a cult. Why in the world would we rejoice, Paul? Well, he says, let your gentleness be evident. He said, the Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything. Don't be, man, don't, don't be anxious about anything. But Paul, are you crazy? My kids are failing. My husband is leaving. ISIS is coming. Bank accounts are draining. Health is waning. Don't be anxious about anything. What, what then, Paul? But in every situation... With prayer and petition, by thanksgiving, present your requests to God. In other words, don't run to the idols to make you happy. Don't build up your barns to make you happy. Don't avoid fixing this. Don't try to self-medicate your way out of this. Go to the perfect love, to the one who really does hold your tomorrow in his hands. Bring it to God. Commune with God. Press in to God. So you get every piece of you attached to him as best as you can. Because if you will not run to all of your idols, if you will not let yourself sit there and be paralyzed, but if you will run to God and believe deeply, you know what will happen? Paul says, and the peace of God, which transcends all of your understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are an idolatrous people. I am an idolatrous pastor. I speak oftentimes of something I don't know. And so, Lord, before my friends and with my friends, we confess, Lord, that we are quick. We are like sheep prone to wander. We're prone to ask the question, do you even care? We're prone to forget all that you've done. We're prone to be paralyzed in our fear and do nothing. And most of all, we're prone to create our own gods. Lord, as we come to the communion table and as we try to repent and change our thought process, would you meet us here, God? And with that video of that, that thought process, that picture of running to the arms of an all-powerful, all-loving, and all-in-control-of-God play in our hands. In Jesus' name we pray.